We've had somebody that has volunteered in the bookstore, stepping up now, leading our women's open share groups, um, being the coordinator for that. And she is a phenomenal woman, and you're going to be able to hear her story. Will you guys please welcome Roxanne as she comes up to share her story with us? Hello. <clears throat> Uh, my name is Roxana. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus. I'm celebrating recovery from verbal, verbal physical, sexual, and emotional abuse. Hi, Roxana. Hi. Uh, Acts 18, 9, 10 says, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack you and harm you because I have many people in the city. So people in the city, will you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I acknowledge my dependence on you, Lord. This is your story in the making. It's definitely not perfection, but progress. I ask that tonight you would calm my nerves, not too much, like Scott said, but enough so that I can get your story out and that you would speak to whoever it is tonight that you wanted to meet one-on-one, -on -one, deep to deep. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 <clears throat> I was born in Stockton, the youngest of two children to a single mom. I never knew my biological father. My mom left him when she was seven months pregnant with me. All she ever told me was that it just didn't work out. <clears throat> when I was two years old, my mom met and married the stepdad who would raise me. He was an alcoholic and would go to the bar after work until the wee hours of the morning and then come home drunk and want to fight. <clears throat> Often my sister and I would be huddled together in the closet or find refuge under the bed. These fights were horrifying and very physical. The fighting would get so bad that my mom's sister and I had bug out bags. So we would leave in the middle of the night and go to a safe house, which was a friend of my mom's. Being woken with such violence took its toll on me. <clears throat> I struggle even today to sleep through the night. My environment was teaching me that fighting and rage is an acceptable pattern of emotional expression. The terrifying nights were rarely, if ever, talked about. I felt sad, scared, and lonely often. When I was in fourth grade, we moved and, and had to go to a new, I had to go to a new school. I stayed home from school sick one day, and an older girl in the seventh grade jumped my sister at the bus stop. She was really late coming home, so my parents sent me to find her. When I found her, she was beaten and bloody. I brought her home, and my parents were mad at her for being late and getting into a fight. This was the earliest memory that I can recall of inner rage. That night, I made a decision that I would vindicate my sister. I went into my stepdad's garage, got his welding glove and a loose chainsaw chain, and stuck it in my backpack. The next day, when I got off the bus, I beat that girl up, and I fled. That would be the first of many fights. The problem was that now nowhere and nobody was safe. The next year, my grandma died. That was significant because it meant another move, not just across town, but to a small town over an hour away. We moved in with my grandpa. He was also an alcoholic, toxic, and abusive to my mom. Here, the physical fights between my parents decreased, but the verbal turmoil grew worse and worse. My sister and my mom began to fight a lot, verbally and physically. My grandpa remarried within a year, and 
of my grandma's passing and moved out. But then we had to either buy the house or move again. So my parents bought the house. This meant that my mom had to get a second job, which also meant that I was alone more. Anger and rage were becoming a constant companion to me. I could often be found at the local park in a fight. At this point, I had been in too many fights to count. I was sort of like the Hulk, always angry. I just needed a slight reason to explode. <laughs> it seemed anger was the one emotion that I could allow. Anything else was too vulnerable and led to being hurt. In the beginning of sixth grade, there was a new kid at school. He and I became instant friends. The first day, he invited me to his house after school. My mom was working. My sister had run away and ended up in a group home. I was happy to have somewhere to go. He was a positive influence and encouraged me to be good and to get into sports. I never wanted to go home, and a safe place was a true gift. My freshman year in high school, a huge event happened. A friend came to me and said that my biological father had been killed in an accident. She told me that her dad was friends with my dad and my uncle. This uncle wanted to ask if I would come to the funeral to meet my siblings. I never knew about this uncle or any siblings <laughs> from my dad. A lot was going through my mind, but I agreed to go. I was in for total shock as I walked up to the casket. I realized I did know this man. This man, my father, had been at my friend's house when I was there a lot. I had even seen him around town several times. I was confused and flooded with emotions. That day I also met my grandmother and five siblings, all I never knew I had. Most of these newfound family members would be a constant source of pain and rejection. I returned to school feeling more lonely, knowing I had a whole family that lived only a few miles from me most of my life. Rejection was an understatement. <laughs> my male best friend, can you bring me a tissue, please? <laughs> he was under strict orders. <laughs> I didn't plan on crying, but yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> um, my male best friend and I seemed to grow closer and closer. Before long, other kids started to comment about our relationship, telling us that we were a couple. It was a very confusing time for both of us. We would talk to each other about it, and I would always deny my feelings to myself and to him. Only through recovery would I realize just how shut down emotionally I had become. This denial was the first of my emotional deprivation, leading me to a lifetime struggle with emotional anorexia. Him and I made a pact that if we were not with someone by the age of 21, we would just be with each other. <laughs> there was a girl in my class that started asking me to hang out after school. I was always at his practices, so she started to come along. I was naive to think that she actually wanted to be my friend. What she wanted was him. She began creating division and tormented me daily. All very subtle and manipulative. Most of the things that he never saw or noticed. I went to a track meet and when I returned, she had written obscenities on my car with a Sharpie pen. That night, I got a call from my best friend. He was begging me not to hurt her. He asked me, please, please don't hurt her. Um, <clears throat> He asked me not to make him choose between her and I. I was hurt. He had obviously already made the choice. My hurt turned to anger. My anger turned to rage. The next day, I was suspended 
for beating her up. Like all other things that hurt, I cut it off. Our friendship was over. Nothing conti things continued to deteriorate. My sister was now homeless, living in her car, and had become a full-blown addict. I was always wondering if she was even alive. That same year, I was sexually assaulted and molested by a trusted adult. I essentially just went into hiding, not physically, but mentally. I missed my best friend, and I had so many emotions, but I had no healthy tools for handling them. I, gave, I began to tell myself not to care. I learned that, just like anger, deprivation was power. It seemed I could deny myself anything emotionally. I had made it a game or a challenge to myself. There was essentially nothing that could be taken away from me if I could deprive myself of it first. No surprises. If I felt threatened, I would fight back. Hard, fast, and the element of surprise was my new best friend. When I walked into a room, I just sized everyone up and planned my escape. After the sexual assault and molestation, I was not interested in boys at all. My only focus was to protect myself. Around my junior year in high school, everyone seemed to be talking about sex. Wanting to be in control, I just picked a guy. I heard he was having a party, showed up completely prepared. I stayed there with him for three days. When it came time to say goodbye, I made it short and sweet. I told him it was fun, but over. <clears throat> Basically, every relationship from that point was exactly like that. At 17, I finished high school early and enrolled in college in Sacramento. I had three jobs and had saved enough money to move. I told my parents, I'm moving out. That was it. No plan, no transition. I was just gone. After living with a friend and finally turning 18, I rented a two-bedroom apartment, found a roommate, and a 29-year-old boyfriend. I started going to bars and clubs. I never really drank to get high, only to blend in. Like all other relationships, it was fun, but I ended it. My roommate was finishing her last semester. She was moving back to Olympia, Washington, and had started talking to her ex-boyfriend every day. He had a friend named Todd. <laughs> he heard my name in conversation, and he started singing that song, Roxanne. <laughs> I said, tell that guy to shut up. <laughs> Instead, they decided to introduce us over the phone. That was December of 1991. Our first conversation, he asked me a lot of questions. He said, do you believe in God? Are you wanting to just date or get married? And how many kids do you want? <laughs> to the most important question, I said, I believe in God, I guess. To the others, I said, I'm looking for something serious, but I'm not ready for marriage right now. And kids, I don't know, one or two. He just said, I want a van full. <laughs> I said, what kind of van? <laughs> This guy was really different from anyone that I had ever dated. After talking every day for a month, I rode a bus to go meet him in person. That was January of 19. I was being drawn into something that I could not control. Even though I was scared, I wanted to trust him. I was just so used to denying my emotions that I continued to try to push him away. I would get close to him and then try to show him how I felt for him, but no matter what I really wanted to do, I would still push him away. I would choose deprivation every time. I was confused and desperate to break free of my cycle, but I had no tools. For years, even though my heart, heart desperately wanted to love him back, I was just not able to come out of denial and hiding. 
I loved Todd, but my need to be in control and safe meant that I had a lot of challenges. One was my temper. The only emotion I seemed to know how to express was anger. Mean words would fly out of my mouth faster than anything else. Our, all of our arguments would inevitably turn into a challenge of trust. Everything centered around trust or the lack of it. On August 3rd, I was invited to an event at my niece's church. It was called Scared Straight. The chaplain from San Quentin and his wife were there. When the lady got up on stage and she shared her testimony and she talked about her anger and fighting and abandonment and a life that ultimately led her to prison, I saw myself in her story. I understood the mentality of fighting to survive. I wanted to break this generational cycle, but I had no tools. She gave an invitation to receive that power. I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior that night. The next year, on July 14th, 1993, Todd and I eloped to Reno and got married. <laughs> I wish I could say that everything got better, but it seemed to get harder. That year was the worst year of our relationship. Although I did not want a marriage full of fighting, I had no examples, no role models of what a healthy marriage even looked like. We moved to Washington State to be near Todd's parents. These people were very different <laughs> than what anything I've ever experienced. One major difference was that they were always hugging each other. <laughs> I never saw my parents hug or touch. I was super uncomfortable touching anyone. I would actually stiffen up when Todd would hug me. <laughs> anyway, uh, Todd wanted to buy me an official wedding ring since we had eloped and found one at a pawn shop that was perfect. I loved it, so proud of it. When I showed his dad, he made a comment that it must have been cheap. I was offended, which was nothing new. I was always offended. I told Todd as soon as he got home, he went in to confront his dad about it. They started arguing and things got really heated. And at the point in the argument when my family would have turned physical and something you know, crazy, something crazier happened. Todd's dad grabbed his hand and said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to hurt anyone's feelings or be disrespectful. I love you, Todd, please forgive me. And immediately, without hesitation, Todd said, I forgive you. And they held hands and started. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty shocking. I was in awe. Like, what was that? <laughs> I know now that it was love. The love of Christ ruled in that home. I wanted that kind of love. I needed to be around more of that. Todd and I decided that we needed to find a good church. One Sunday morning, we headed for church with no money, no gas. Our tank was empty. By the grace of God, we made it. Halfway through the service, this lady sitting next to me handed me something. I looked down on the front of the envelope she handed me. It said, gas money. She said that morning, God put it on her heart, and she obeyed. Philippians 4.19 says, God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God was building my faith. Although our lack was painful, a painful time, I was learning to trust him for provision. That lady became a spiritual mentor to me. 
one of the most profound things that I learned from her was about my marriage. Whenever I started to complain about Todd, she refused to hook up with me. I would talk myself out about how I was right and how he was wrong. After I was done, she would pray the most sincere, heartfelt prayers for my marriage and for Todd. It taught me that God was for my marriage. Romans 8.31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Growing up, verbal abuse was everywhere in my home. Feelings had to be hidden in an effort just to self-preserve. I did not understand what she had done, but I was drawn to it for sure. Psalms 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one that takes refuge in him. I could see the goodness of God in my father-in-law and in her. I wanted more of that in my life. My marriage started to grow, and I was doing all the domestic wife-type things, <laughs> cooking and cleaning. I was now using my self-deprivation to control myself. I internalized everything and became completely OCD. I was obsessed with being perfect, or what I thought a perfect Christian was. At this time, I was watching kids every day after school. One of the moms asked me to attend a, Bible a women's Bible study with her so that she didn't have to go by herself. I'll never forget what the guy on the video said. He said, we seek to validate that which we already know. I thought to myself, what do I know? What do I seek? Through that program, I realized I was in a complete performance addict. I had the motto that I must meet certain standards just to feel good about myself. All of my standards were self-created, not God-created. When I knew I was, what I knew was very contrary to the freedom that God wanted me to experience. I only knew performance. He cares about relationships. I knew some truth, but he knows all truth with grace and love. Still, any relationship that was hurtful, I just cut it off. I had such unrealistic standards that no relationship could survive, much less thrive. I was very selective about who, when, and what was around me. I had created a bubble of a life. I had the illusion that I was in control. If people knew, if people knew I would not approve, they would just become what I expected them to be when they were around me. I was still judgmental and lonely. In October of 2017, we had some family come and stay with us. I realized that there was definitely some prescription drug use going on. Ultimately, it resulted in the family member checking into a 30-day treatment program. We were asked to support the family member by attending the family group therapy session twice a week. The sessions were, in my opinion, not safe. I made a decision that if I were to continue being a support and help with recovery, I would need something Christ-centered. I saw a post on Facebook about Celebrate Recovery. Just the name sounded like a better choice. In January of uh, 2021, I celebrated three years coming to Celebrate Recovery at Big Valley Grace. <laughs> Since walking through these doors, I have found hope, a hope and a freedom that I've always wanted. I've learned that steps one, step one says I am powerless. Step two says I am not God, nor am I in control. Step three says that it's a decision to turn it all over to him. And essentially, the world does not revolve around me and my limited thinking and ability. I am not God, and I am not in control. Through the safety of our open share groups, I can open up about my feelings and identify them. One of the very first tools I received from my sponsor was a list.
I had no idea it was even possible. I still go times to try to identify what I'm experiencing. When I attended the open share for the first time guests, we were encouraged to try every open share until you find your group. From the first meeting, I made a decision. I was not going to try to make this program in Roxana's image. <laughs> I was going to trust the process. I would not give it half measures. My very first group, or my very last group, was the abuses group. I did not go to that group until the very last simply because I never saw myself as abused. Now I call that my group. <laughs> I am experiencing safety and healing among, the, among women who have a similar story and are willing to share about it. I would always hear people talking about step studies, so I joined the first one available. The guidance of the steps is unbelievable. I kept thinking, how in the world could these simple questions be so life-changing? All I can say is that it works if you work it. The large meeting lessons and testimonies every week have been a priority for me from day one. The podcasts available have helped me Tuesday to Tuesday more times than I can count. Through CR, I have learned that I do not need to be here as a supporter, but as a participant in my own recovery. I have completed the Journey Begins step study and the Journey Continues, all eight books. Upon the recommendation of my sponsor, I began to serve helping in the bookstore and facilitating open shares. I have begun to peel back the layers of my past hurts, habits, and hangups. I have recognized that yes, I was abused and I was an abuser. Romans 2.1 says, therefore you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same thing. I have learned the, well the truth that hurt people do hurt people. I am learning to admit my needs and shortcomings. I'm learning to process what I have experienced and what I have done as a result. Along the way, I'm finding true healing and peace. I stay in steps one through three, so I remember that the world doesn't revolve around me and I'm not in control. I'm learning daily how to surrender all of that to the one who is God. Often, moment by moment, because the days can be really long, <laughs> I've learned through Christ and CR to identify my old default coping mechanisms. I'm getting better at not devaluing my need for friendship, no longer entertaining the lie that I used to tell myself that I don't wanna be friends with them anyway. Because that only leads to the next toxic thought which tells me to deprive myself by thinking, saying no is easier than admitting I have a need. Which progresses into isolation and the thought that I am lonely but no one really cares or needs to know. These thoughts are now sifted through the word of God. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedience to Christ. All of this has become possible because of Jesus Christ, my higher power, and the safe people that I have met here at CR. Today I have learned not to go back to that isolated, lonely little girl. Instead, I show up and keep showing up. I share, even when I don't want to. I trust the process, I trust God, and I'm learning how to trust others in Christ. My high school best friend went home to be with Jesus 13 years ago. I have grieved his death and processed all the denial that I lived around that relationship. I am learning to accept this world and others as they are, not as I would have them. My mom has been remarried for the last 23 years to a man I proudly call my dad. They live with us and my kids are very blessed to be surrounded daily with love and affection. Life is not perfect. 
but with Jesus and CR, I'm now able to lean in when it hurts rather than run. I have a long way to go. Thankfully, now I have a place where there are tools and safe people who lead by example how to do life differently. I no longer choose deprivation, and I am celebrating recovery from emotional anorexia. I just want to say thank you to a few people. First of all, my husband, the father of my three miracle babies, who do fill up a van. <laughs> to my step study ladies, open share group, accountability partners, and sponsees for your faith and belief in my recovery, I want to say thank you. To my sponsor for the countless hours. and for never leaving my side. To the newcomer, I am so grateful that you're here. Thank you for showing up. I don't believe that you're here by mistake or chance. I do believe it's a divine appointment for you. Maybe you didn't even wanna come, or maybe you came to support someone else like I did, but God wanted you to know that he has a hope and a future for you. He's a gentleman and he will never cause harm. He will turn what the devil meant for evil and work it for your good. He wants to do you good. Keep coming back and your miracle will happen. Thank you for letting me share. That is awesome. Thank you very much for sharing your story, man. That's one of the great things is, man, the 12 steps isn't just for alcoholics. We've got a lot of people that are hurting and broken. And uh, when we apply them to our life, it helps us all heal. I'm just so grateful that uh, we had a chance to hear a story tonight of somebody that was able to do that. So thank you for your hard work and what you've done. I encourage you, she's usually out there at our uh, bookstore and stuff like that. So swing by and tell her. Uh, if, that, if you appreciated her story at all. Um, but tonight, let's close our time with a serenity prayer, and then we will head off to our open share groups. And then after open share groups, since none of you like dessert, we'll just go home. <laughs> no, we'll have dessert after, but let's close the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Amen.